How long, O oh Lord, is a familiar phrase of lament that you and I probably have experienced. How long, O oh Lord, until I can finally graduate from school? How long, O oh Lord, until I can finally find a job? How long, O oh Lord, can I finally find a special someone who loves me? How long, O oh Lord, until I can finally flee from financial debt? How long, O oh Lord, until my kids can finally grow up and give me rest? <laughs> How long, O oh Lord, until I no longer need to suffer from this pain in my body? How long, O oh Lord, until my parents or my siblings will talk to me again? How long, O oh Lord, until I can stop committing the same sin over and over? How long, O oh Lord? We live in a simple world and as, as we learned last week from Pastor Jason, sin leaves ruins everywhere. So there are bound to be many areas where we feel lacking and deeply broken. And often we don't really know what to do with it. Not just, not just that we don't know how to fix it, that we don't even know what to think of it. You know, in the end, we give it a shrug and we say, it is what it is. In our current sermon series, we have been going through Psalms of Lament. It is our desire that all believers would learn the language of lament to express the languishment before God. Psalm 13 is written by David to the choir master, who is the person that will lead the congregation of Israelites to sing. There is not that much given in the context or at the background of the psalm. But that might just be intentional. Because the psalm is not to, you know, to remind Israelites of any particular historical context or you know, story in David's life, but rather it's a psalm for all who are afflicted and are in despair. Psalm 13 is written to teach Christians how to bring ourselves from a place of languishing to joyful and our lamentation starts with crying out to God, honestly and freely. And that is our first point. You can cry out to God honestly and freely. And that means you can be as vulnerable, as raw as you could be with God, without pretension or feeling the shame of it. You have the permission to do that, because that's what David did. Let's read verse 22 again. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David begins the song with four repeated phrases of how long. Posing as questions, but really these how long are really rhetorical. His David's a lament of his experience of being forgotten and abandoned by God. And in verse 2, he continues to lament that he has tried to ad address the sorrow and bitterness in his heart, but he cannot do it. And his enemies are triumphing over him. See, there is something striking about David's lament. David laments 
giver God as the king who was appointed by God. He is the chosen one. He's anointed by God's prophets, the one through whom God will establish a great house and powerful kingdom for his offspring. And the throne of his kingdom will endure forever. But even David, the one who wrote famous lines such as, the Lord is my shepherd, who shall I fear? Or because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, that David, he is feeling isolated and forgotten by God forever. And it is as if God is hiding his face from him, withholding his presence and blessing from David. See, even the, even the king, David, is not exempted from suffering and agony on this earth. Even he had to wrestle with inner turmoil and experience deep sorrows as he laments. He is frustrated by the presence of God, and he has to deal with his reality all the day long with no answers from God. And meanwhile, his enemies, they're rejoicing over his downcast. And again, these people are not specified in this text, but they're likely the rebels or the enemies of Israel. And as God's appointed king, the enemy of David is also the enemy of God. And yet, they're happy and they're rejoicing over David's fall. How long, O Lord, O Yahweh? That's all David could mutter at this point. The emotional and spiritual pain immobilized him, and he is at his wit's end. So let's step out the immediate text for a bit, and remember that this psalm is given from David to the choir master, you know, the worship leader, to all the Israelites. So why is David sharing such a vulnerable prayer with the whole nation? Because David wants to encourage all Israelites to bring their despair before God. He is leading by example to demonstrate that even the king has moments where he will need to cry out to God, to open up to God all his pain and all his fear, uncensored and unedited. A few years ago, I remember listening to an episode of Ask King Pastor John about what to do when our uh, what to do in our Bible reading when our heart feels cold. I was surprised to learn that even John Piper, you know, one of the most passionate men, admitting that he would often feel cold when he reads his Bible in the morning. And it is not until you know, he reads and prays for about 30 minutes when his heart finally begins to defrost and warms up. I know this may sound sacrilegious, but even likewise, when a king of Israel humbles himself before his people, lamenting his experiencing of abandonment before God, he is leading by example to tell his people that you have the permission to cry out to before God, honestly and freely. You know, as I was hearing the story shared by John Piper, you know, I remember being oddly encouraged to share his struggle. You know, it helps me to know that I just must continue to press in with my morning devotions, even when I don't feel like my heart is in it at all. You know, I've, 
After all, if this is a common experience for someone like John Piper, then it will certainly happen to me. And we have to press in and plead with God to light up the fire in our hearts. So that is what David's lead doing in his song. But, you know, a question came up in the past few weeks as we are going through uh, the sermon series. That is this, you know, how honest should I be in my lament? You know, what if my words are irreverent? What if I say something that's heretical, you know, when it's unfiltered and uncensored? Well, first, I want to acknowledge that th these are good instincts. You know, yes, we should absolutely approach God in awe and in reverence. But the question remains, what then should we do when we feel disappointed, bitter, jaded, angry at God? You know, isn't it irreverent or is it wrong to complain to God about what's on our heart? Isn't that just being ungrateful? So I hope the lament of David can give us some insight on this dilemma. As we have observed in verse 1, he laments that he is forgotten by God and God has hidden his presence from David. But is that true? The answer is yes and no. Let me explain. His lament is true in that that is indeed his personal and honest experience at that very moment. He feels abandoned and forgotten by God, and there is no denying that experience is true to him. And we could call this, you know, the subjective reality. You know, it's based on what we experience personally. It is a reality as we perceive. But at the same time, it's not true because the objective reality behind this lament is not true because God does not forget his covenant people forever. And he will never abandon us. So just as David himself writes in elsewhere in Psalms, like Psalm 23 verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in verse 6, he writes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. See, we call this the objective reality. You know, it's the capital truth. You know, it is a universal truth for all. So how do we reconcile this? You know, the difference, the contract between our subjective reality and the one that's um, the objective reality as we know what is true. So what David demonstrates in Psalm 13 is this, that you can acknowledge what you experience. The subjective reality, you know, you can bring that before God without projecting it, you know, without making it the absolute reality of universe. So you can, uh, you can uh, you know, I'll repeat again, you can acknowledge what you experience as true to God while without making it as the ultimate truth. So just like David, we can bring our emotions and our thoughts before the Lord honestly and freely, even if it may not be the objective truth, you know, even if they may not be the most well thought out words, and you may be even be ashamed of yourself for admitting these feelings out loud in prayer. But go before God in prayer and tell him what's going on in your heart. He would not reject that. 
David writes this in Psalm 51, verse 16. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Maybe you feel bitter towards God because everyone else is progressing in their life, you know, getting married, having children, buying a house, traveling the world, while you feel stuck in your life, you know, above, beyond what you think you should have achieved at this point. Maybe you feel unhappy with God because you achieved what you have hoped for, but it is not what you expected. You know, sure, you got married, but your marriage lacks chemical chemistry. You know, children are gifts from God, but sometimes, you know, they feel more like burdens that hinder you from enjoying life. Maybe you have a house, you have a job, you have a family, but everything and everyone around you demands your time, your energy, and your money. You got what you dreamed of when you were in your 20s, but now all you wanted is to retire and be free from the responsibilities. So how can we bring these things to God? You know, aren't they just seem so petty? I mean, shouldn't a godly and mature Christians only pray, you know, the prayer of acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplications? You know, how can we be so ungrateful to complain what is supposedly a gift from God? How can, you know, after God saving me, giving his son to me, I still have this bitterness towards him? How can I even admit that I feel envious because another believer has what I wanted? How can I ever tell God how angry I am about my faith, about how much I gave up for God? You know, I came to church every Sunday, I pray regularly, I finish reading my Bible once a year, I serve on two ministry teams, but yet my life is a mess. I struggle with the same sin from 10 years ago. Half of my church don't even know who I am. And frankly, my next door unbelieving, uh, unbelieving neighbor is nicer than most Christians that I know, including myself. What do we do with these thoughts? See, as a culture, we tend to react to one mistake by swinging it to the other fence. So we know that in our society today, you know, truth is whatever you feel like it. You know, obviously that is wrong. So when I say crying to God honestly and freely, I am not saying that our perceived reality is the objective truth. It is merely what we experience at the moment. But on the other hand, you know, the response to that can be summarized with this very famous phrase, facts don't care about your feelings. And to be honest, I quite liked it at first. <laughs> but over the years, and more and more I find it problematic. You know, mentality like this can make Christians very uncomfortable to express their feelings, especially when they feel like their inner thoughts do not fit the standard Christian mold. You know, I think most married folks would probably know this. When your spouse comes to you with, comes to you with burdens on his or her heart, simply telling them, well, facts don't care about your feelings, <laughs> won't do any good to the situation or to your marriage. And likewise, you know, a good God will not reject your cry simply because it is not the most sanctified and perfect prayer. No. You know, you see, while it is true that your feeling does not dictate the objective truth, 
But as we live in a fallen and sinful world, it is expected our emotions do not often align with the ultimate truth, because that's actually what drives us to God in prayer. So the alignment, the realignment of our heart to the truth of God, is not by shutting down our emotions, you know, because they're not factual, but it is by coming to God with our hearts, with our mind, in prayers before God as we lament. You know, look at our text. Of course God does not forget about David forever, nor is God hiding from, his, from David. But yet, that's how David felt at the moment. And these words are written in the Bible to teach us that it is not only okay to cry out before God with all your feelings, it is encouraged to do so. I mean, you can't really hide from God anyways, even if you want to, right? You know, who knows your heart better than God? And he is inviting you to bring them before him, just like David did. So cry out to God, oh Lord. So let's go before God in prayer Cry out honestly and freely in your lament, even when your perceived reality does not quite match the ultimate truth of God. But we will get there. But give lament some time. And we will get there by pleading with God desperately and dependently. That's our second point. We need to plead with God desperately and dependently. In verse 3 to 4, David pleads with God. He writes this. Consider me and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In verse 3, David asks God to consider and answer him. You know, he's quite bold to make such a request to God. We don't typically go to our higher authority, you know, to think of us, to remember us, and to listen to us, unless we are desperate. And that is the position David is in. As he expressed, um, you know, by calling out God with his covenant name, Yahweh, which is a word behind um, all capitalized Lord. And the second request of David is to light up my eyes. To light up one's eyes means to give light through instructions, to illuminate truth in a person. And how can God give light to David? It is by shining his face on him with his presence. That he's asking God to no longer hide his face from him, but appear, but come before him. Just as David writes in Psalm 4 verse 6, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. And then David backs the motivation of his request with three lests, uh, which is just another way of saying otherwise. So if God does not answer David's prayer and shine his presence before him, David would sleep the sleep of death. Here David presents himself as a dying man. Without God's immediate intervention, that he would soon die. 
and his enemies would then claim victory of David by declaring that I had prevailed over him. Then they would rejoice and celebrate over the fall of David. And moreover, since David is the well-known as, you know, he's well-known as the faithful servant of God to his enemy, that the feet of David would mean that uh, they have also claimed victory over God. So David appear, David's appear, appeal to God is this. Remember me and answer me. Restore me with your presence and all the blessings. Otherwise, I will die. And those who hate me will claim victory over me. Rejoice over my fall. And not only they will do that to me, they will do that to God. See, again, that's a bold move for David to leverage his personal relationship with God. And he's in, even invoking the glory of God as the motivations for God to answer his plea. But it just goes to show you how desperate David is in his plea, but also his faith and his dependence on God to deliver him from his despair. So friends, as you wrestle with your sins, do you plead with God with such desperation? Do you depend on God as a child to the Father as you experience great turmoil in your heart while you endure a never-ending trial? Are you confident enough that God would answer your prayer because you are his child and he loves you? Do you believe that though God's glory is full and you cannot add any bit more, but nonetheless, he is delighted when you as child flourish spiritually, that you would reflect the light of Jesus and bring glory to this dark and glory, uh, dark and broken world. So as you see the Lord in your lamenting desperation and dependence, do you believe that God is also seeking you? In John 1 verse 1, Apostle John uh, compares Jesus as the word of God. And through this word, God created the whole universe. And in Jesus, uh, there is eternal life, and because he is God. He is the light that will shine brightly in this sinful and dark world. And in John chapter 1, verse 9, he writes that God sent this light to us. He gave Jesus to us as the light of the world. But though Jesus came for everyone in the world, but not everyone will receive him because they don't need Jesus. Do you know what is a marker of someone who doesn't need Jesus? It is someone who does not resonate with the lament in Psalm 13. There are some among you here who have yet to experience the desperate need for God's presence and salvation in your life. You may have a sense that the world is not right, but you say, well, there is good and bad everywhere in the world. You may be humble enough to acknowledge that you are not perfect, but you still think you're a pretty decent person, better than many Christians that you know of. But what you don't have is the awareness of your own sin 
and the danger of living your life without repenting it. You don't need Jesus because you don't see a need for salvation. You don't need salvation because you think your life is fine as it is. You may even think David's a bit melodramatic and Christians are kind of weird for wanting to learn how to lament. Or maybe you have realized that no matter how much you try, there are patterns and habits in your life that are destructive, you know, that is hurting yourself and those around you. Your laziness, your lack of motivation, your hot anger, your fear of men, your insatiable desire for money, for reputation, for control, for sex, is driving you to the verge of burning out. Or you may look around in your life and you hear all the stories of evil and injustices that, are com that were committed in the past that are still committing in the present. You are overwhelmed by the human evil and the, that we committed against each other. And you feel helpless and you feel hopeless. Then I would want to offer you this good news that Jesus is here for you. In fact, in the Gospel of uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus proclaims himself uh, as the one um, to come to the earth to seek and to save the lost. He is here as the light of the world to save those who knew that they are lost without God. He is here to open the eyes of the blind, those uh, who know that they are living in darkness and they're desperate for light. He is here to bring the presence of God to those who realize how empty and cold life will be without him. He is here to save all those who know, they, who know that they are just dying men because they have all sinned against the holy God. He accomplished all that by pouring out his life for us so that we will live and gain a new life in Jesus. Romans 5 verse 8 to 9 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God showed his love for us by sending his own son to die on our behalf. We are justified meaning declared righteous, declared good before God, because Jesus' blood cleansed you of all your sin. Our God is wrathful towards all evil and all sin. The only way for you to be saved from it is by repenting of your sin today and believe in the saving work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. And Christians, would you consider this truth as well? I know you've heard it a million times already, but even David, the anointed king of God, in his momentary isolation from God, even he would need to cry out to God for his presence and for his blessing. Certainly, we need to plead with God, desperately and dependently. And as you plead, you will need to committing yourself to trust God 
in joyful worship. And that is our third point. Committing and recommitting to trust God in joyful worship. David writes in verse 5 and 6, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. We have seen David crying out, you know, his complaint with God, honestly and freely. We have heard his plead desperately and dependently. And now we see David is ready. He's ready to position himself to worship God by committing himself to God in his truth. And this shifting tone is by the word, but as his expression in confidence and determination is expressed with a present perfect tense, I have trusted in your steadfast love. See, David's making this transition from lamenting in his, in his subjective reality to committing himself to the truth of God in a way that God has revealed in his word. And that is the steadfast love of God. The enduring, merciful, and faithful love of God that is a marker of God's key character. So how do we know this is the ultimate truth? How do we know this is the objective reality that we ought to align ourselves onto? It is because it's revealed by God himself in his own words. In Exodus 34 verse 6, Yahweh declares to, uh, to Israelites after he, declared, after he delivered them from Egypt, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, this is a key step in our lament. You know, we must be careful not to get stuck in our complaints, you know, or only ending petitions in plead, but we also need to affirm the truth as revealed in God's word. But is that it? Is affirming truth the end, of, end goal of lament? No, the end goal of our lament is joyful worship. The second half of verse five writes this, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Verse five, uh, six, five uh, writes, I will sing, I will sing, sorry, I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the future tense here is not the same as before. That's because you can choose to trust in the truth about God's character, but joyful worship will have to follow afterwards. And David, as David is finally lifted up from the rock bottom to a place where he can, he can proclaim, God has dealt with me bountifully with me at the end of verse 6. But joy is not something we could simply manufacture. You know, I've seen this inspiration quote that says, choose happiness. I mean, I appreciate sentiment, but who would choose bitterness in the first place? So you see, the purpose of Psalm 13 is not giving us a convenient three steps to happiness in life. You know, it's not a life hack to go from despair to worship that will just happen instantly if you do these three steps, you know, cry out, plead, affirm. It, 
the real life is much more complicated than that. Lamenting is not a formula. You do not just say one lament prayer and then all of a sudden, your heart will be lifted into singing and praising of God. Sometimes, and more often than not, to get to that place will require patience and waiting. Lamenting is a process. It's a language that allows Christians to endure and embrace trials in their life in a way that is not passive, that is not despondence. It is an active activity to engage our hearts and our minds to speak to God honestly and freely, you know, to seek God's help as a child, and then to commit and often recommit over and over to believe in what God says He is and what He has done in your life, even as your trial continues. Lamenting is not a shortcut to stop feeling pain. Author uh, Mark, I wish I can say his name well, the Grokop, writes in the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, lament keeps us turning toward God, uh, turning towards trust by giving us language to step into the wilderness between our painful reality and our hopeful longing. In a way, lament is like a bridge. It connects the reality of our pain to focus on the hopeful longing that's founded on the trustworthiness of God. So friends, if your heart is worn down by your sins or the sins, or the sins and brokenness of the world, if you just had enough of your trials in your life, learn to practice lament in Psalm 13. It is not a bad thing to experience pain. Mark again writes in his book, suffering refines what we trust in and what we talk about. Pain can bring clarity and loss affirms trust. As we lament before God, our sight of our beautiful Lord is clarified. Our faith in a gracious God is strengthened and our longing, our desire for the day when all sins are judged and all wrongs are rectified deepens. Okay, one last quote from Mark. I love that book, you should get it. Pain can become a platform for worship. Suffering can lead to trust. Lament is a language for this transition. Songs of sorrow are meant to move us from this, from complaint to confidence in God. So why don't we as Christians make lament a habit? I will give you a few quick reasons to why we don't lament, and you can see where you fit in that. One, we don't lament because we rather pour out our emotion elsewhere. Some of us here would much rather tell all our problems to our friends, to our spouse, than to God. Yes, there's a place to speak honestly and truthfully with friends and your family, and even without all the filters, but more often than not, it seems we rather to rent, you know, take, take the burden off our chest, rather than seeking reorientation of our hearts before God. 
See, the object of David's lament is to God. And you know, he, what he desires the most is the restoration of God's presence in his life. So do not replace lament to God and prayer to God with the renting to a friend or family. Second reason why we don't lament is it's easier to seek escape rather than confronting our feelings. You may think this is one for the macho men out there, you know, the facts don't care about your feeling folk. But really, women do this too. You know, when you feel anxious or in despair, where do you turn to? You know, I think the quickest way for many of us is to our screen, you know, to, to scroll mindlessly. And we call that the me time. And some of you may turn to games or food or Netflix or shopping or pornography or alcohol or drugs. But the relief, you know, or the high may only come for a moment. It may be quick, it may be easy, but it will never truly resolve the inner turmoil and the void in your heart that's only meant to be filled by God. Third reason why we don't lament, we're self-reliant. You know, I tend to think these people are more resourceful and more resilient in every positive way. And honestly, you know, they're probably the more successful in this life, in this world. You know, they take up their personal responsibilities by strapping up their boots. You know, they're quick to tackle the obstacles in their life and they, you know, they confront them head on. And there's nothing wrong, guys, let me affirm that. There's nothing wrong with learning practical wisdoms to manage the, all the responsibilities in your life. If anything, if you're 25, you don't know how to budget, you don't know how to plan your schedule, you should get on with it. <laughs> but what I do found is this, you know, these people tend to depend on their own habits, on their own routine, rather than on God. You know, the fact that they tend to be more successful only leads them to become more self-sufficient and less dependent on God. Have you ever found, found you know, the hardest people to evangelize are those who have everything, you know, they're happy with their life and they don't really need God. And if they wanted something more, they would just work. They work harder. No, 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 they, they work smarter because that's the way these days. <laughs> you know, people who have everything sorted out have no need for lament, but Christians, for rec who recognize the sinfulness of their own heart and the brokenness of the world will come before God, humbled and desperate like a child to bring everything before God in their lament. In their lament. Lastly, we don't lament because we have neglected God's heart for the world. I'm speaking the others to those among us who are very blessed by God in many ways. Your health is good, your family is in order, you don't have significant source of worry or stress because you have walked in the fear of God for years and you have learned the precious wisdom of life. You live a godly life and you participate in the life of the church regularly. You read your Bible and you pray and you're probably growing in your knowledge of the word and you're maybe someone that other Christians might even want to emulate. But you don't lament. Because frankly, 
you have not linked your heart to the heart of God, and there's nothing in your immediate circle that you need to lament for. So my encouragement for you is, give thanks to God for all the blessings that he has given you, and then learn and lean into the heart of God. When I was a young Christian, I loved the song Mighty to Save. There's one line in the song that just, you know, that always moved me to tears. It says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Christians who have comfortable lives, would you pray for this today? Would you pray that God will break your heart for what breaks his? Would you weep with those who are weeping around you? Would you allow yourself to be vulnerable and to feel the pain of those around you who have suffered, who are suffering in their illnesses, in their broken relationships? Would you groan and weep with those who are knee deep in their sin and are backsliding in their faith? Would you remember and pray for your unbelieving families and close friends those who you share a meal with, but are on their way to hell because they do not see a need for a savior, or they haven't even heard about the gospel because no one has told them. Would you intercede in prayer for brothers and sisters in Christ overseas who are living under persecutions because of their faith and all the evil and injustices that are being done onto them? friends, would you conform your heart to God's heart and give lament a try? Because until the Lord returns, there will be suffering and trials. But God has given us the language of lament to actively wait on God with patience and faith. And you can cry out to God honestly and freely, and you can plead with him like a child desperately and dependently, and last, God will move you to rejoice in worship, even when the circumstances around you remains 